So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and our scripture is going to be very short tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I'm just jumping right into it. There's not going to be a lot of stories. There's just going to be a lot of Bible tonight. And I hope you're good with that. The doctrine of election is a really tough doctrine when you're first being exposed to it. If you were here last week, you will remember me saying I literally almost jumped the table to fight my best friend when he was telling me about it. R.C. Sproul says that he hated the doctrine of election and its counterpart predestination. For the first years that he was taught it, resisting it. And yet, the Scriptures present election as a wonderful thing. Every case, whenever it is brought up, it is in the positive. It is a wonderful doctrine. As we see in Ephesians 1, it is the very first of all the spiritual blessings that Paul could have enumerated, and he did not. This was, Ephesians 1 is not an exhaustive list of all the blessings that we have in Christ. He names just several, but the very first one that he chooses to enumerate is the fact that God chose those Christians before the foundation of the world. So rather than move on from this, even though we covered this last week, I felt that it was important for us to linger a little longer. And the reason is, is not because I want you to jump over the pew in order to fight me. I want us to move together and look at the Scriptures and I want us to move, depending on what, however you feel about this doctrine tonight, I want, one, you to see it in the Word of God, and two, your heart to be moved to praise. Because that's the point. The point of all these blessings that we see is to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 5. So I want us to move more. And so I also wanted to linger a little bit longer here because I feel like this is one of those doctrines that Christians, because they argue over them, uh, we, we really need to be equipped. We need to be equipped to know how to talk about it, right? And if we don't talk about it here, it will be more challenging for us to talk about it when we are away from here. So this is an equipping for you and the ministry that God gives you. Now, I'm going to start off with a little participation on your part. Either by yourself, and you're going to need something to write here, 
uh, either by yourself or with someone next to you, I want you to take about a minute and a half or two minutes, and I want you to try to come up with as many questions or objections to the doctrine of election that you have heard before, or maybe that you have for yourself. So you got a couple minutes. I want you just to write them down. If you need to just take sort of bullet points, get as many down. Why do people reject or resist this doctrine? Or what are their questions about it? Go. All right, let's start landing the plane. And you can write as we talk, but just for the sake of time. So if you're uh, joining with us for the first time, we are going through a series, just started a series on the book of Ephesians. We're going to be here for a while. And typically, we're just expounding text, but this periodically, we're going to come upon a topic that's in Ephesians that we need to spend a little bit more time. So that's what we're doing tonight. So I want to give a reminder. I gave a definition last Sunday of what election is. So on the screen behind me, you're going to see... Um, this is sort of my best shot at it. Others have put it in different words, but this is what I would say. Before the world was created, and according to His own plan and purpose, God has chosen people out of the mass of humanity that He would create to be recipients of the salvation that He offers to all. So, before the, before the world was created, and according to the, His own plan and purpose, God has chosen people out of the mass of humanity that He would create to be recipients of the salvation that He offers to all. Now, as I was thinking about how I could best serve you all and thinking about what the questions are, and, and this is the reason I wanted you to write your own down, I've come up with five, five that are typical that I come and, and have to answer. And I'm going to try to answer those questions as best I can from the Bible and from reason so that you can want, well, you can know how I would answer them, but also because it may help you cross a hurdle in your own understanding and your own appreciation of what it means to be chosen or that God chooses people. So the first question that seems to always come is that what if someone wants to be saved but God has not chosen them? Did anybody have that question on their list? Okay, got one, two, few, three. So what if someone wants to be saved but God has not chosen them? That's a, that's a super legitimate question because you think, wow, the... Um, if God has really chosen people, it's like the kid who wants to be on so-and-so's kickball team, but he doesn't ever get chosen. What do you do? Is that the way God's choosing happens? Well, there are many <clears throat> verses, as we all know, that say that if someone comes, or if someone believes, or if someone follows then God will receive him. All right, We all know those verses, and we don't want to dismiss those verses. However, underlying this particular question, I feel like, is a misunderstanding. And this actually will answer several of the questions, is a misunderstanding 
of the doctrine of sin and its effects. So in order to answer this question, i got to talk about sin. What, let me just, this, we're going to sort of ask some questions. What does sin do to us? Somebody throws, throws things out. What, what does sin do? It separates us. It kills us. What else? Blinds us. It corrupts us. So sin has an, a pervasive effect. It affects relationships for sure, but it, it affects our ability to respond to God. You see, the assumption is that left to ourselves, left to themselves, people can freely choose God, right? That's the, that's the assumption behind this question. Left to themselves... People can freely choose God. But in the next chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, it starts off with this verse behind us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what spiritually dead people do. They're moving in a direction, following Satan, living for themselves. And the question I ask is, what changes someone from doing that to becoming a Christian? Is it that they just decide to make a change? Somebody look in Ephesians chapter 2, it should be if you're looking there, and tell me what the next two words after that are. But God... This is what we are like, but God steps in. But God steps in. Another verse that I want you to see about the effect that sin has on you is said by the, our Lord Himself in John chapter 6, verse 44. It says this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. What I want you to see there is that there is an ability. This is not about our will or our desire. This is about our ability. No one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father. That's the equivalent of, but God draws some people. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and he says, the natural man... The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you read it, is in the ministry of the Gospel. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, meaning the Gospel, for they are folly to him. Anybody ever been there? You're witnessing to somebody, sharing the Gospel, and the person that you're talking to is just like, That's, that is ridiculous. That is so simplistic and whatever. Anybody ever been there? It's foolishness to them. But look what it says. And that person is not able 
to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, putting all this together, what if somebody wants to be saved but God has not chosen them? The reality is left to themselves, nobody wants to be saved. I heard it one time said that God could have presented, uh, sent Jesus to the earth, lived a perfect life, crucified Him on a cross, buried Him, raised Him from the dead, uh, sent people around the world to proclaim this, but if something else did not happen in the heart of dead sinners, there would never be a convert. And I believe that. Now here's the question. Why does anybody seek? Why does anybody want to be saved? Because God has moved in that person's heart. Why on the day that you came to know Christ, I think of the time that in May of 1991 when God opened my eyes, why, didn't, why did the other people remain unaffected? Because God in His sovereign grace opened my eyes. So this doctrine doesn't work against the seeker. If, true, if someone is truly seeking God, it's because God is working in them to seek. So this should be an encouragement to the person who is seeking God. If someone wants to be saved, short answer, they can be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's as much Bible as the next. Now, I don't know if y'all can tell it, but my neck feels red. Does it look red? I don't know whether it's because I got a tie, but uh, I'm, I'm burning up in here. All right, maybe I'm just nervous. Maybe I'm afraid you guys are going to come over the pew towards me. Number two, question number two uh, that I hear is, is God unjust if he only chooses some? Who had that question as an objection to the doctrine of election? Is that f some people say, is it really fair? Is that fair for God to choose some and not others? And the answer I would say to that, I'm not at the Bible yet, but is, do you really want fairness from God? So you're laughing. I wasn't even trying to be funny. But, I mean, is that what we want? We don't want fairness. Now, here's an illustration. What if I had two $50 bills in my pocket? I'll get rid of the 10, that's a 50, and that's a 50. I have never seen many 50s in my life, but... <laughs> Grant. Is that Ulysses S. Grant? I don't know. Is that, that's, that's pretty bad. American history, I am not. All right, I got two 50s. My eyes are closed. Were they taken? Did somebody have them? Yes. All right. All right. Someone's got, I just gave away $100. Now, let me ask you a question. You didn't get the $50. How do you feel right now? That's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's messed up, right? What? Do you feel a little like, man, I wish I'd sat in that chair, right? How come they got it and I didn't get it? Me, but let me ask you a question. Was I unfair to you guys? 
who didn't get the $50? Why not? Excuse me? You weren't required to do that anyway. I wasn't required. Uh, it was indiscriminate. My, that's why I closed my eyes, so I couldn't choose the, the people I liked or disliked. I wasn't buying anybody off. or any. It's my money. I can do whatever I want to do, Tim. It was grace, right? So you see that. It's not an issue of fairness. When God gives out what people don't deserve, that was undeserved. By the way, I'm getting that back. <laughs> you let God give you what's undeserved. You give me my money. Who has it? Who has it? Oh, they didn't even take it. All right, I know I put one on this side. Look at Krista. She was tucking it away. <laughs> so, but, but you see the point. People say, well, that's unfair. That's unfair of God. To, to give people, to choose some people and not choose. But really, it's actually the people who don't get chosen get fairness. The people who do get chosen get what? Grace. Heaven because of grace, right? Now, let's look a little bit at what the Scripture tells us. We have to be very careful about putting God on trial, about whether He's fair or not, as though we're wise enough to deliberate justice. But I want us to look at Romans 9. Romans 9 uh, addresses this issue of fairness. Um, and G and uh, Paul says, because the context of verse 14 is, he's talked about, uh, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob was chosen and Esau was not chosen. Jacob was loved and Esau was hated. And then Paul anticipates this question, which is natural. So, by the way, our emotional response is the same response that ha they had 2,000 years ago. That doesn't seem fair. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Some people are kind of like, Maybe. How does the apostle answer it? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Meaning, I can choose to have mercy on some people and compassion on people and not give the same mercy and compassion to other pr people. He goes on, and I don't mention, I don't show these verses in verses 16 and following, to talk about there was a time when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Talk about what seemingly unfair hardened his heart in order for God to accomplish his own purposes through Pharaoh. And then Paul says, some people will say, well, then who resists God's will? It's almost a sarcastic moment. Well, who resists God's will? You know, and Paul's answer in that case, you can read it in Romans chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, says, Who are you, O man, to speak back to God? Shall the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? So, is it unfair? It's not unfair. God does whatever He wants to do with what belongs to Him. I want you to hear what John MacArthur says about justice. 
God defines for us what justice is because He is by nature just and righteous. And what He does reflects that nature. Before I read any more, does anybody here want to say, I don't believe that God is just and righteous? Okay, that's, that's wise. Every, what He does reflects His nature. His own free will and nothing else is behind his justice. This means that whatever he wills is just. And it is just not because of any external standard of justice, but simply because he wills it. That means, and this is hard to say because you see God saying do a lot of things in the Old Testament particularly. God is not on trial when he commands that his people wipe out other people. God determines what is just. And we, would, we need to be very careful that we don't rise up and try to put our creator on the bench. Third question. Does, if God has chosen certain people already, why should I evangelize or pray? for the unsaved. Anybody have that question? Or, Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty typical one, and that's one that I think as believers we have to wrestle with. If God already knows, then why bother with sharing the gospel? Um, we pray for people here as a church. We believe in prayer. We spend a lot of time in prayer throughout the, uh, throughout the weeks. But does that really matter? Like, if God's already determined who's going to be saved, why do we spend the time? Why don't, we get, why don't we spend more time worshiping rather than praying? These are understandable questions. But I think they are reactionary questions. The Scripture encourages us to pray and to evangelize for the unsaved. Here's some verses you're familiar with. Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart. So this is right after Romans 9, and the first verse is, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, Israel, may be saved. Believing in the sovereignty of God did not cause Paul to lessen in prayer. It moved him to pray. The next verse, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Matthew 28, 19, we know this one. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. We're commanded to make disciples. We're commanded to do this. And then in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. So the Bible, this, this is just as much Scripture as these other verses on election are. And we, want, we need to seem to under, try to figure out how do, we, how do we put these two together. And a lot of people, what they do with the doctrine of election is they, they, they scan the people that they're around and they say, whoa, this person's pretty bad. They must not be elect." I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm not going to share the gospel with them because, goodness gracious, they're, they're frightening. These people seem pretty close. They must be elect, or maybe we can make them elect. 
I'm going to share the gospel with them. I love what Tim Keller says. Don't you ever try to determine who the elect are. Ever. You share the gospel with all people. The Apostle Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. There are some people in this room who I know you consider yourself the chief of sinners. I've seen God save some wretched souls. I'd be one of them. I thank God that people shared the gospel with me. I've told you the story, I believe, that when the one Christian on the, my football team was making a list of the ten least likely people in order to be saved, yours truly was number one on his list 29 years ago. Thank God he didn't try to figure out if I'm elect. Does he have a tattoo? little E right behind his earlobe? Don't try to figure out who the elect are, no matter how hardened someone may be. They're not a lost cause. So keep praying and keep sharing. And you may have family members. You say, I've shared and shared and shared and shared. Maybe they're not elect. I say, you don't know if they're not elect until the day they take their last breath. You keep sharing the Gospel with them. Don't give up on anybody. And then the question is, why would we send people? If God's going to do all this and He's sovereign over it, then why in the world would we send people to the hard places? Why do we have three people who are part of this church family right now considering going to the hardest places on the planet to bring the Gospel? The places where people actually lose their lives. Why do that if God's sovereign over it? Well, look what the Bible says. Acts chapter. 18, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? Because I have many people, many in this city who are my people. God in a vision revealed to Paul that he had an elect that was in Corinth. So he wanted him to keep on speaking until those people believe the gospel and look at what it says in second timothy chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 remember jesus christ timothy remember jesus christ risen from the dead the offspring of david as preached in my gospel for which i am suffering bound with chains as a criminal this is a man who was acquainted with suffering but the word of god is not bound therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What I want you to see here is that the elect are people that don't know, that have not obtained the salvation that is in Christ Jesus yet. There are some people who try to do this theological gymnastics that say they become elect when they get saved, but Paul's saying he's willing to endure people who are elect even though they're not saved yet so that one day they will obtain that salvation. That's why we send people to the hard places. That's why if God stirs your heart, don't be afraid. You keep on moving towards the hard places. God who ordained the ends of an elect who would be saved also ordained the means to that end, meaning prayer and evangelism and sometimes suffering. Question number four. I sometimes come across 
is doesn't this doctrine of election contradict the universal passages? The passages that talk about all, all people in the whole world. Passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How does that square with the doctrine of election? Or how about this in 2 Peter chapter 3? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or how about this passage? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't those somehow work against the doctrine of election? The short answer is no, they don't. But we all know that if I try to explain that one, we ain't getting out of here till Tuesday. So on the back table, I'm going to let Lorraine Bettner answer it for you. There is, and I'm serious, I want, I made 20 copies, I want, I'd love to have them all gone. If this question is like, how do, how do we square God's election and all these verses that say, you know, the whole world and all? What do we do? Well, uh, he was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1900s before Princeton went crazy, liberal, and, um, but uh, you would be very edified by reading that, and, and I can move on to question number five. <clears throat> question number five. How do I know if I am or someone else is one of the elect? How do you know? Anybody have that question? How do you know? How do you know if you're one of the elect? Wouldn't it be nice if, like in Black Panther, you could just do this and you knew who the elect were, right? <clears throat> Some people ask this question because they want personal assurance. Sort of connected with question one. Some ask it in reference to evangelism. Well, the Bible answers this question, so I want us to look at it. And I hope you're writing these verses down. If you want all the verses that I've mentioned, uh, come and see me afterwards. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He's chosen you. That's, that's a good verse. We know that He's chosen you. How do we know that? How do we know that we're elect? Because our Gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You ever known anyone where the Gospel came to them and it was just words? Made no difference. You can't say for sure that they're not elect because they may awaken to it in the future. But you can know if you have come alive 
to the gospel. And it's come with power in your life and conviction and the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. You can say, yeah, that's a sign that I'm chosen. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did you respond to the Gospel? That Jesus died on the cross for you, was buried, and rose from the dead. That you and your self-righteousness could not save yourself, but God did it for you. How did that message come to you? Was it life? Was it joy? Was it hope for you? Or was it just words? God chose you and He revealed Himself through the Gospel and gave you belief in the truth and sanctification by the Spirit through the Gospel ministry. And then one more verse, Acts 13, verse 48. Paul had been preaching the Gospel and the Jews rejected it. And so he said, I'm turning to the Gentiles. I'm turning to the Gentiles. and bringing this message of the Kingdom to them. And what it says... When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you'd wanted to be part of God's covenant people for millennia, wouldn't you? And look what it says. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The ones who believed, those Gentiles who believed, were those who had been appointed to eternal life. That's another way of saying that God had chosen them and elected them. The way that you know that you're elect is by believing what the elect believe. So let's wrap this up. <clears throat> the doctrine of election may be tough, but it is a blessing. It is a blessing to know that you were chosen. And it's important because it ought to lead you to extol the grace of God in your life. This past week, I was talking to another pastor in the county about uh, this topic, and he told me, he said, you want to know about the best message I ever heard preached on Ephesians chapter 1? I said, sure. And he was at, in seminary, and this old seminary professor, distinguished, had written many books. He was doing chapel. And, his, and he got up and he said, it was his turn to preach, and he opened up to Ephesians 1. And this pastor who was a seminary student was watching this old man and he said, this old man, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this man just started weeping. And through tears was choking back, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. And then he couldn't even get the first words out. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And this man just started weeping. that God would have chosen him 
I confess, and I confess to that pastor friend of mine, my heart is not where that old man's heart is yet. But I'm so glad I heard that story because I realized that's where we should be. This is not, I think that this doctrine is really a place where spiritual warfare happens because instead of praising God for the fact that we're chosen, we argue with one another over what it means. And the devil has got to be behind that. God is not being praised when we think that He's chosen us. When we think about it, we think, how am I going to fight somebody? How am I going to win an argument? What I want to leave you with tonight, and because of time, we're just not even going to have the closing song. Sorry, Julia. What I want us to leave with tonight is, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, and you've come to Jesus, it is because God in His infinite grace towards you before the foundation of the world said, I want you. And He didn't look and see was He good enough or she good enough. He just simply said, I want you. And there's a mystery there. We won't totally answer all of it. But that ought to win your heart as you go through trials in this life. So I'm going to pray and then Luke's going to close this with a benediction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You We thank you. Lord, I I just, in my mind, I think of all those who came for communion tonight, who said with their actions, I don't choose my sin, I choose Jesus, and I remember Him, and I'm thankful for Him. And Lord, I just know that for every one of us, if you had left us alone, we wouldn't have gotten out of our seats. We wouldn't have even been in this building tonight. We'd have been chasing something else. Children of wrath, following the course of this world, led by the Spirit who is now at work at the sons of disobedience. But God, You chose us. And we've come. And we thank You for that. As we go through this week, Lord, we ask that You would win our hearts with the cross and Your love that moved way before You even created this world. And I ask this all in the name of the One that You hear us through, Jesus Christ. Amen.